Yes, it was quite remarkable that royalty from a distant land would come to speak to me, but they didn't want to listen and talk about my kingdom, but rather the kingdom of a child. We've come to seek the one born king of the Jews, they said. There was no infant in my palace. Of course, I come to find out that they were talking about the Jewish Messiah. What child is this? So I sent for the Jewish priests, and yes, they confirmed that a king was to be born of the line of David in the city of David, Bethlehem. I could not let a threat like this stand. A king? A king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews! Confirmed by Rome! The audacity! No, this would not stand. Yes, of course, these dignitaries, they may be a little bit off their rocker. But still, a threat like this to my kingdom, to my authority, it had to be investigated. So I sent them on their way with mock enthusiasm for their quest and a few spies. You see, if what the prophets of the Jewish scriptures said was true, then this child was going to turn our world upside down. Our whole lives would be changed. The whole established order of government, of economics, of social customs, and of even worship would have been turned on its head. It was tantamount to a revolution. No, no. You see, I like my life the way it is. I like being the ruler of my kingdom and of my life. And I know you like your life as well, don't you? You don't need some messianic Jewish king coming in and tearing down everything that you have built up, creating havoc with your customs, with your financial dealings, with your families. So when my spies returned and told me, that those royal nitwits had returned home by another way, instead of coming to me as I had asked them to do, I did the only thing a sane person in the face of such a threat would do. I sent my armies to Bethlehem, and I eradicated that threat, and I did it for all of us. You're welcome. 
Thank you, Rick. That was um, more apropos to our talk this morning than I think I was even ready for. Uh, that was really great. I'm going to do things a little different today. I don't have the, the uh, table that Dave likes to use. I'm using a stand because I've got this thing. It's a little bit bigger than his screen. But then again, it doesn't shut down on me, and I don't have to go like this. So... Um, <laughs> What child is this? Everything hinges on how we answer that question. In the series, we're looking at how the different people in the Advent story saw Jesus. Um, and with Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men that we talked about last week, we see examples of how people approached Jesus and how they responded to him that we should emulate. Well, as you probably have get the idea so far this, in this uh, today, uh, as we're looking at Herod, this is not a response that we're supposed to emulate. This is a response we're supposed to avoid. And based on what you just saw here, what Rick just did so well, um, you're prob- I know some of you who are familiar with this story are probably thinking to yourself, I think I'm good. I think I'm, I'm going to avoid being a, a maniacal, uh, megalomaniac king. Um, and, and yes, that's, I, I suspect that's true. At the same time, um, I believe we can still learn from Herod's mistakes because I believe that the things that he felt threatened by are things that we sometimes, even in 21st century America, can also feel threatened by. To Herod, Jesus was a threat to his rule, to his lifestyle, even to his own sense of infallibility. And for those of you here who are followers of Jesus Christ, you know that his call in our life results in changes to our lives, right? Our priorities, our life goals, our time, our resources. As we learned last month during the Entrusted series, God has entrusted everything to us to be used to bring him glory. But sometimes we don't want to make those changes. Sometimes we want to hold on to our plans and our lifestyles when God calls us to live differently. And though our responses to the threat of Jesus to our lives may be very different from Herod's and not as extreme, they may still be an avoidance of the call of God. So often we run from what we need most and we do so because of fear and because of discomfort. So ultimately it comes down to this question, what motivates us to action and what actions are we going to take? Is God our priority, or is our priority ourselves? Our big idea this morning is this. Herod saw Jesus as a threat to be mitigated, to be alleviated, to, avoid, to be avoided. How do you see Jesus? What is the focal point of your life? Today's message is going to be a little challenging. Um, I'll, be, I'll be up front with you. It's challenging for me, it has been. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, honestly, I'm gonna be taking you through a little tour of my psyche, my personal psyche here for the next 30 minutes, because these are the questions that God has been raising in my own heart and mind over the last several years. Um, we're gonna be looking at scriptures and authors that have really um, kind of confronted me in some ways that I've had to deal with. But throughout this challenging process, um, 
I've continued to have a sense of God's love and his grace. And so that's how I want to approach today. That's how I want to approach this morning. I want to approach it openly and talk about God's call openly, but I want to do so in light of God's grace. God has placed before us a real need to respond, but he stands with us to help us along the path. And his grace is always there for when we stumble. Um, I don't know if, if ever any of you ever um, thought of the distinction between conviction and condemnation. I think this morning it's important to talk about that. Both can be hard. Both conviction and condemnation can be hard, but only one of them has hope. Conviction leads to change. Conviction leads to repentance. Condemnation just leads to damnation. Conviction says, follow me, I have a better way for you. Condemnation says, you missed it, you lost out, you're done for. When you're condemned, it's too late. When God convicts us, it's a demonstration of his love because he wants to help us before it's too late. It's not his desire to condemn us, and I certainly hope today that you won't feel condemned either as we talk about some hard things. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we come to you today as the people that we are. We can be no other. Only through your grace and through your spirit can we be changed. But God, um, Lord, this morning I pray that it would be your words that would be spoken, um, that I would just be a conduit, God, for what you wish to say. And that um, as we look to what it means to make Jesus as King and Lord, um, that we would hear from your Spirit, that we would be convicted and not condemned, that we would be helped, that we'd be encouraged and we'd be reminded that you are with us and you are good through it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, one thing we're going to do a little differently today than, um, than what you've probably experienced usually in church, I am going to now preach on the exact same portion of Scripture that Dave preached on last week. <laughs> um, of course, the difference is last week the focus was on the wise men. This week we're now going to look at Herod and his response to the coming of Jesus. So we're going to start here in Matthew 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his stars rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I may go and worship him too. As we know, that was never his intent. Well, after the wise men had seen Jesus, we skip ahead in the chapter, it says this, when it was time to leave, the wise men returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. 
Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem. I'm sorry, this is hard for me. Who were two years old and under? <laughs> Based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. What a tragedy. Why? Why would Herod respond like this? Why would he respond to the news of Jesus, the coming of the Christ, like this? Let's look at this. He gets scared. Right? He's shaken to the core because these wise men have come and they've said, where's this king of the Jews? And all of Jerusalem has heard it too. And so what does he do? He manipulates. Right? He calls first the teachers of the law in and he has them tell him, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? Then he brings the wise men in and says, when you find this baby, tell me where he is so that he can track them down so he can track Jesus down and kill him. He manipulates, then he lies. Well, then he finds out that the wise men have left have not told him. So now he gets mad. And he's even more scared because he realizes that now he doesn't know where Jesus is. Just that he's somewhere in Bethlehem. And so, as Rick showed us, he made the only decision he could make. So he thought, in his madness, and he killed all the infant boys in an entire village. It's not part of our usual Christmas picture, is it? We have our nativities, our creches, where we see the wise men and the shepherds. We see Mary and Jesus around, baby in the manger. We don't see a picture of the morning of an entire village because of the slaughter of their children. But it's a real part. It's a real part of the original Christmas story. Again, why? Why would Herod act like this? Matthew doesn't tell us why, but I don't think it's very hard for us to guess. I believe Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his kingdom. I mean, if you think about it, the Magi came to Herod and asked, where is this newborn king of the Jews? Have you thought about the irony of this? The wise men came to the king of the Jewish people and asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Why would they do that? Well... Probably because the Magi, not knowing any better, the wise men not knowing any better, probably thought, well, the newborn king of the Jews must be a son of Herod. Imagine their surprise when they found out that wasn't the case. But now Herod was confronted with a problem. If stargazers from an eastern land following a star to find a newborn king of the Jews had come, and if all Jerusalem knew about it, Herod was confronted with a very real and immediate threat to his throne. Or so he thought. You see, Herod didn't understand why this king had come. And he didn't know for what purpose. He assumed that someone was coming to claim his throne from him, not realizing that Jesus had just left his heavenly throne to come down in intentional humility 
for us. He didn't know that Jesus didn't want an earthly political rule, but an eternal kingdom. But Herod didn't know those things. So Herod saw Jesus as a threat to many of the things in his life that he held most dear. Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his rule. He saw Jesus as a threat to his lifestyle. And he saw Jesus as a a threat to his sense of self-righteousness. What we're going to be talking about today is that subconsciously, we, we, believe it or not, can sometimes feel that Jesus threatens our own lives in the same way. Even though we say we want to follow Jesus, we're hesitant to give him full reign in our lives and to let him rule in our hearts. So I want to look at these three specific areas where Herod was threatened, and I want to see, are there parallels we can draw in our own lives? Things that we can learn so that we can make the right decision. What, what child is this, and how do we respond? So first, Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his rule. And obviously, it's understandable why Herod would think this way. If Jesus was being heralded as the new porn king of the Jews, Herod assumed Jesus was a threat to his very throne, and it was right to rule over his people. More than just about rule, this is an issue of control. I think Rick demonstrated this very well. Herod wanted to retain control over his kingdom, over his lone life, and over his people. But even we can become enamored with the illusion of control and with our own sense of independence. We like to believe that we're independent. We have songs that say, I did it my way. We celebrate the self-made person, right? It's fully accepted and expected in our culture that people be driven in their decisions by the drive for personal success. The Apostle James warns us that that kind of an attitude, that kind of desire for control and independence can be counter to the will of God. In James 4, he writes this, Look here, you who say, Today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise you're boasting about your own pretentious plans. And all such boasting is evil. Now, is James saying that plans are bad? No, he's not. But he's saying that selfish ambition is. Does God not want us to set goals? Of course he wants us to set goals, but he wants us to set goals that are based on the right desires. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, we all know what he said, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. Love God, love people. If our actions and our choices are motivated by those two things, loving God and loving people, then we're in a good place. But if our decisions are sometimes motivated by personal desires, personal ambition, then maybe we, like Herod, need to reassess whether we're heading in the wrong direction. So Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his rule. 
He also saw Jesus as a threat to his lifestyle. Um, As king, Herod had the freedom to do whatever he pleased, right? Money was no object. He lived in the palace. If he wanted anything, he sent someone to get it. It was that simple. If Jesus was crowned king, he stood to lose his kingly privilege, and that meant loss of his lifestyle. Well, like Herod, we can be devoted to our lifestyle. We may not live in a palace, but we're comfortable and we like to have fun, right? Fun. Girls just want to have fun. I've heard that. Actually, most of the guys I know are the same way. Uh, We want to have fun. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. Fun is not a bad thing. God is the creator. He created us and he created us with a capacity for enjoyment. So the very fact that we have the ability to have fun is a gift from God. Fun's not the problem. The problem is, do we look for fun in the right places? When does fun become sin? Are we looking for fun in the wrong things that we know are outside of God's will? Are we looking for fun in good things? But we put too much priority on them and they're monopolizing too much of our time. Are we looking for fun in material things rather than in eternal things? Fun should be a natural outgrowth of living a life in sync with God and with the people that we love. Really, if you think about it, fun comes from the relationships that we have. But we have this tendency to seek after the fun itself, whatever we deem that to be, instead of investing in the relationships that make life fun. What about our comfort? We like to be comfortable. We like to be comfortable in our accomplishments, sometimes in our status, and our reputations, comfortable in the lifestyle that we live. I think that our desire for comfort is sometimes even more insidious than our search for fun. Certainly we have Joneses to keep up with, but we also have a reputation to maintain, right? And sometimes maintaining a reputation means maintaining, maintaining appearances. Let me, let me ask you an honest question. Um, have you ever thought to yourself or worried about how the people who know you, your colleagues, friends at work, wherever, how they might think differently about you if they knew that you were a Christian or that you were serious about following Jesus? Have you ever worried about that, that people would think of you differently if they knew you were a Christian? I have. I'll be perfectly honest with you, I have. You know the last time I was confronted with this? It was a little over a month ago in this very room. And that was when we had just begun the Entrusted series, and Dave handed out these little blue wristbands. And he asked us if we'd be willing to wear this wristband for a month, everywhere we went, as a reminder that everything we have has been entrusted to us by God. And as soon as he asked me that, I thought to myself, I wear this at work, someone's going to ask me why I'm wearing it. I don't know if anyone else in here had that same thought. I did. And so I had to make a choice. Am I going to wear this? And am I going to open myself up to that question? And I decided I was. I was going to wear this for a month. Every day I was going to wear this at work, knowing full well someone was going to ask me. And so I had to be prepared to answer the question, why am I wearing this? Well, interestingly enough, I was only asked one time. I was asked one time. It was my boss 
who is not a Christian. Why are you wearing that? And so I got to tell him that we were in the middle of a series at church where we were talking about how our talents and our gifts and our resources have been given to us by God. We're not entitled to them, but rather he's entrusted them to us so that we can use them for the benefit of other people just as much as for ourselves. Well, honestly, he didn't know quite what to make with that immediately, but then he kicked in with, oh, I'm with you on that entitlement thing. <laughs> I had to make a decision a month ago whether I was going to wear my faith on my sleeve or right next to my sleeve. Because I did, it gave me an opportunity to share some life, even just a little bit, with a man who needed to hear the good news of Jesus. But if what we value most is a lifestyle, our fun and our comfort and our reputation, we might miss out on opportunities to show Jesus to the people around us. Well, lastly, Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his sense of self-righteousness. Now, what, what could I mean by that? Well, keep in mind that Herod was king. That means his word was rule. He believed he could do no wrong, because if it was wrong, he could then declare it right. He had that power. Jesus then represented not just a new ruler, but he represented the Messiah and the plan of God as laid out in the scriptures. Scriptures that Herod, Hebrew or no, king of the Jews, he was aware of the, the Hebrew scriptures. And they were scriptures he had largely ignored throughout his time as king. Jesus was a reminder to Herod that he had ignored God. The same can be true for us in those places where we have ignored God. Those Christians were grateful for the cross. We still subliminally sometimes want to maintain a vision of our own goodness, of our own um, morality. For the most part, we want to believe, I'm okay, you're okay. right? And if I can compare myself with the guy down the street and I'm not as bad as him, I'm content. And so often, we gauge our morality and goodness by comparing ourselves with those people. In the incarnation of Jesus, and particularly in view of his death, God confronts us with our own sin and need. Being better than most is no longer the bar. Simply put, Jesus is a threat to our conscience. We can no longer be comfortable in our sin, our wrong attitudes, our selfishness, our pride. The Apostle Paul makes the reality of sin, um, he makes it really clear in Romans chapter 3, where it says this, All people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise, no one is seeking God. All have turned away, all have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Well, that would be very, very bad news indeed. That would be condemnation if Paul stopped there. But thankfully, Paul didn't stop there. He reminds us that we're not left alone in our need. In Romans 5, he says this, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. 
Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good, but God showed his great love for us by this. He sent Jesus to die for us when we were still sinners. We didn't earn it, folks. It's a free gift from God. We didn't earn it. We didn't earn it because we couldn't, because we're sinful. The coming of Jesus shows us the mindset that would say, I'm okay, you're okay, is not okay. It's not okay. If we're okay, we don't need Jesus. And the world doesn't need Jesus. And the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus were meaningless. But as soon as we recognize our need for Jesus, as soon as we recognize we need him, we become recipients of the greatest love that the world has ever known. And we become effective ambassadors to share that love with the world. But Herod missed it. Herod missed it. He missed the majesty and wonder of the birth of Jesus because he was threatened by how Jesus might change his life. So he chose a different path. Tragically, the path he chose not only ruined him, but it also impacted an entire community. There's damage to self and to others, collateral damage, when we treat Jesus as a threat to be mitigated rather than a savior to be worshipped. Collateral damage. Under Herod, we know what that looked like, right? It meant the death of a bunch of baby boys. The weeping of the families. It meant an entire village bereft of its children. What about us? Surely, in 21st century America, there's not collateral damage like that. Not tragedy like that. Well, there are ways in which our decisions to run from God will negatively impact those around us. Our families and friends can be hurt by our wrong motives and our avoidance of God's call. And God has called us to be a light in a world that is ripped apart by war and poverty and disease and famine. And if we choose not to be the light, the world is just going to stay in darkness. There is no other light, folks. We are it. Ultimately, when our lives don't reflect our faith, it damages our Christian witness. Our, our life group, our small group here at Grace, just recently finished a study um, called Reckless Faith by Kevin Harney. And, and Kevin makes a comment in that book where he says, the world doesn't believe that we believe what we say we believe. I'll say that again. The world doesn't believe that we believe what we say we believe. Why is that? Because Christians sometimes don't look any different from the rest of society. We just don't look any different. So if Christians don't behave differently, and if we don't love differently, the rest of the world isn't going to see any reason to pursue Jesus. What could be a worse tragedy than that? Mark Laberton is the president of Fuller Seminary. He wrote the book called... Um, just a few years ago, and in that book he makes this statement about the church. We must face up to the enormous loss of credibility between the faith the church professes and the actions we demonstrate. Nothing else should matter to the church of Jesus Christ as much as this. The gospel and the church are not the same, but for many outside the church, they're indistinguishable. When God's people fail to live our call, the church buries the gospel. That's where we are. 
That's the crisis we must face. As I said at the beginning, these are sobering things to consider. (laughs) But I recognize many of you already thought these things. These aren't new to you. I'm not telling you things you don't already know. The issue isn't our knowledge. It's when our lives and priorities don't align with what we know. So how do we respond? What do we do with this? We need an eternal perspective, not one for just this short life only. Yes, God's call in our lives is a serious call. God's call in our lives is important because the people around us are important. And to influence them in positive, eternal ways, we have to live lives of integrity and consistency. We can't be hypocrites. James again speaks to this thought when he says this, Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free and if you do what it says and don't forget what you've heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Integrity as a Christian means that if we call Jesus Lord, we follow him as our Lord. Jesus himself made a very clear statement about this call to follow him when he said, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Over the past number of years, a couple of decades, I say there have been a number of authors and, and Christian leaders who have wrestled with the topic of how the kingdom of God that Jesus initiated and preached about differs from the practice of 21st century America and our church. In the church today, we enjoy and celebrate, and we should enjoy and celebrate God's great love and his grace for us. Absolutely, we need to celebrate those things. But we don't regularly think about, much less talk about, taking up our crosses in order to follow him. So this has been a part of my personal journey for the past few few years, is I've struggled with the question of how much I'm willing to yield my life to God. How much am I willing to take up my cross and follow Jesus wherever he leads? Or am I just willing to fit him in whenever I have the time and wherever I leave some space? Some of you are probably familiar with David Platt. He wrote several books. One of them was called Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. Successful pastor. You'd think he'd have this together, right? And yet, in his book Radical, he says, my biggest fear even now is that I will hear Jesus' words and walk away, content to settle for less than radical obedience to him. A friend of his, another pastor and author, Francis Chan, um, wrote a book called Crazy Love. If you've not read it, um, I encourage you to do it, but be ready. It's a challenge. It's a challenging book, but it's a really good one. In that book, Chan has a, a chapter called Profile of the Lukewarm. And he talks about what lukewarm Christianity looks like. And you read the chapter, and, and at first you might think, yeah, I've seen churches like this. You don't finish the chapter thinking, I've seen churches like this. You finish the chapter thinking, I see myself in this. Ultimately, 
Chan comes to this realization. He says, the core problem isn't the fact that we're lukewarm, half-hearted, or stagnant Christians. The crux of it is, the crux of it all is why we're this way, and it's because we have an inaccurate view of God. We see him as a benevolent being who is satisfied when people manage to fit him into their lives in some small way. We forget that God never had an identity crisis. He knows that he's great and deserves to be the center of our lives. Jesus came humbly as a servant, but he never begs us to give him some small part of ourselves. He commands everything from his followers. These are challenging words. I know these are challenging words. But it's, it's, the, it's because of the importance of what's at stake. It's, it's our lives and the lives of all the people around us. Without Jesus, we're lost. We're eternally lost. The world is lost. My intent today is not to load you up with a, a bunch of guilt. Again, this is not supposed to be about condemnation. I, I don't want you to leave here today thinking that your response is supposed to be, I've got to get with the, get with the program and, and, and pluck up and, and, and do better, work harder. Yes, as I've been praying about these things over the years and read these books, I have been convicted by God about things in my own life, but I've also been continually reminded of God's grace and his goodness and the fact that in the midst of my failings, he is still committed to love me. He's committed to being with me all the way. And so I've come to realize something very important. What I need most is not behavior modification. I need to fall in love with Jesus. It's not about changing our behavior. It's about falling in love with Jesus. Those of you who have fallen in love know how it changes you, right? Most of the time you don't have to pluck yourself up to change your behaviors. It just naturally happens. You've fallen in love, and it changes who you are in this relationship because of of what this new person has done to, to change you. Being in love changes you. But when we're in love with Jesus, something even greater happens. The Holy Spirit changes us and does the work in us that we can't do on our own. God himself is at work in us. You know, as we look back at the Advent story and the specific characters in the Advent story, all the different people, Mary, Joseph, the wise men, the shepherds that came to Jesus, came to him in love and worship in their own way, and they were changed because of it. They all did this except for Herod. He let the perceived threat to his kingdom keep him from seeing Jesus for who he really was. And because of that, he remained mired in his shallow self. Jesus told us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. Well, some, we seek Jesus first and foremost in love. And as we do that, part of the, all these things that God does in us is to change those behaviors and those, those priorities and all those things in us that need to be refined. God does it in us. We don't have to make it happen on our own. And when we find ourselves in love with Jesus, we start to understand the abundant life that God has for us. Astonishing, we get to, do you guys realize, we get to experience friendship, direct, deep friendship with the God of the universe. And that's a friendship that will last through eternity. I also realized something else recently. We're insiders. 
You know, sometimes it feels good to be an insider. We're insiders in the greatest story the world has ever known, and it's a true story. It's our story of relationship with God. But it's, we're insiders not keeping it to ourselves. He's entrusted the story to us to share it with the world around us. That's a privilege and a blessing. Mark Laberton again said this. I think this is powerful. He said, When I was considering the possibility of embracing Christian faith as a young college student... What I feared most was that it would make my life smaller rather than larger. Less love, less joy, less creativity, less wonder, less engagement. When I finally came to faith in Christ, I discovered that Jesus saves people for the very smallness I feared. I saw that the very essence of the kingdom of God is a life bigger than I could ever find outside of it. Jesus said something similar to this. He said that the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Jesus came to give us an abundant life. Why would we want to seek after anything other or less than the abundant life that God has for us? Herod didn't save his kingdom. He lost his eternity. He didn't save anything. He lost everything. I don't want to make that same mistake. And so those things in my life that I cling to that are lesser, I want to set those aside for the better life that God has for me. As Jim Elliott so famously stated, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. When my son Jonathan finished confirmation a couple years ago, he was given a book by a pastor named Judah Smith. The book is called Jesus Is. And he and I have read parts of this book together and talked about it. One particular quote from that book, I think, summarizes well what we've talked about here today. Judah writes this. Some of us sing songs every Sunday about how good and powerful God is. We tell him we surrender our lives to him. Then we go to school or work on Monday and strive and stress as if it all depended on us. We make life about ourselves, about pleasing ourselves, about accomplishing our goals, about making things happen on our own. It's a sneaky, unspoken switch that flips in our minds from Sunday to Monday. But the results are obvious. Worry, sadness, fear, anxiety, pride, anger, impatience, jealousy, bitterness, gossip, confusion, and tension. I don't know about you, but I prefer rest, peace, joy, and a feeling of purpose. That's a list I can get excited about. Once Jesus is the focal point, once he's the reason we live, everything else makes sense. Life becomes simple. Priorities fall into place and peace, joy, and rest return. Come to me, Jesus calls to us today. Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the point of life. Let's pray together. God, this morning we are reminded that you are our king. And that may be foreign to some of us who live in a culture, an environment that doesn't have a king. Our understanding of rule may be different, but God, as king, you're truly the ultimate authority in our lives. God, forgive me for the times that I've done things on my own, my own way, and known that you had something different and something better. Forgive me for the times when I have 
not listened, when I've been stubborn, when I'm stuck in my own rule and my own lifestyle and my own self-righteousness. God, help us to see that you are in this with you are in this with us and that you love us. And that to give our lives to you is not a loss, it is a gain. And to serve you is to participate in the greatest story ever told. God, draw us to yourself. Make us fall in love with you even more. In Jesus' name, amen.